You smell that? What is that? What? What's that smell? A cologne? No. Opportunity. No, money. Microphone check, one, two, what is this? It's your rich BFF all up in your business, helping you find ways to build your wealth. Old money's been keeping that all to themselves. The table's been turned, the deck restacked. It's your money, honey, start stuffing those sacks. That bag is yours, don't let them tell you it's not. Viv 2 is here to teach you what you should have been taught. How to spend smart, how to invest for the future. You want Fendi bags? You really need couture? Then listen up close, because Miss 2 keeps it fresh. She's dropping that knowledge on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And we've got something special on board for you this week. Viv2, aka your rich BFF, joins the Express and we are taking it to another level this week, the video level. We'll be posting our entire conversation with Viv on the Investopedia YouTube channel later this week. So be sure to check that out on youtube.com slash at Investopedia. Our chat for this podcast will be coming up in just a few minutes. But first... Say it, Sly, take me higher. The Dow and the S&P 500 hit highs for the year last week as stocks kept on rallying, as bond yields cooled, and there were more signs that inflation is really abating. Investors are going to miss November, which was the strongest month for the stock market in over a year. The S&P and the Nasdaq rallied 8.9% and 10.7% respectively to notch their best monthly performances since July of 2022. The Dow jumped 8.8% for its best month since October of 2022. And the beleaguered bond market finally got its groove back as investors frantically bid up the price of treasuries, agency, and mortgage debt, sparking the best month in fixed income since the 1980s. Call it the everything rally, as everything from small caps to mega caps, corporate bonds to U.S. treasuries, and even obscure cryptocurrencies caught fire last week. Risk is back on the menu as everyone seems to want to believe that the Fed is done raising rates and may even start cutting them earlier in 2024 than expected. Fed Chair Jay Powell tried to curb the enthusiasm on Friday, saying the Fed has no such plans to do so, but no one was really listening. They were busy looking at the expectations for the path of the Fed funds rate through the CME FedWatch tool and the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now forecast. Those show lower rates by the beginning of the second quarter of 2024, which is kind of around the corner. And that brings us directly into our big three for the week. Number one, wishful thinking about the Fed cutting rates sooner rather than later should come with a healthy dose of reality. As Fidelity's Jurian Timmer points out, it's not always pretty when the Fed stops raising rates and tries to manufacture that so-called soft landing we've been hoping for. It worked in 1984 and in 1995 during the Volcker and Greenspan eras at the Fed as the economy was coming out of deep declines, but in 1966, that soft landing translated into an 18% drawdown for the stock market. To be sure, the U.S. economy at the end of 2023 is a lot different than it was in any of those prior eras, but it's worth noting that the Fed usually cuts rates to stimulate a sluggish economy. So if the Fed feels like rate cuts are necessary sooner rather than later to stave off a recession, that could be bad news for the stock market and the overall economy. Number two, on the other hand, our pal Callie Cox at eToro reminds us that Newton's first law of motion could prove itself to be pretty useful when examining the recent momentum in the stock market. If it's true that objects in motion will stay in motion until an external force comes to stop it, then stocks, the object in this case, may very well continue to rally through December and maybe beyond. To her point, the S&P 500 has not declined a quarter percent or more in the past 14 days. That's the longest streak since 2019. Rallies like this are usually followed by guess what? 
more rallies. Since 1950, when the S&P 500 has rallied more than 8.6% in a month, it has posted above average returns in subsequent months. And that's what big investors are betting on. Remember that institutional investors account for around 80% of stock trading every day. And right now, according to the National Association of Active Investment Managers, these big investors are buying stocks at the fastest pace in two years. And number three, you know what would really help the case for stocks to keep rallying into next year? Better earnings. After all, as investors, that's what we're paying for, the expectations for better earnings that translate into a higher stock price. And right now, that's what most analysts are expecting. According to FactSet, the bottoms-up EPS estimate for the S&P 500 for 2024 is $246.30. That would mark the highest annual earnings per share number reported by the index since FactSet began tracking that stat in 1996. Talk about great expectations. But keep in mind that a lot of things have to go right for those expectations to be realized. Our job as investors is to keep everything in perspective. Not too high, not too low. Just ride real smooth on these tracks. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and the labor market will be in the spotlight. Heading up to the November non-farm payrolls report on Friday, we'll get the job openings and labor turnover survey for October on Wednesday and the ADP private payrolls report on Thursday. As for the November jobs report, economists are expecting about 200,000 jobs to have been added last month, but remember how wrong these economists have been in the past few months. We had that blowout gain in September, and we had that much lower than expected number in October when only 150,000 jobs were added, plus a lot of revisions to prior months. Translation, it's harder and harder to get good data on the labor market these days because it's much more dynamic than it used to be, but it's still growing. The Fed would probably like to see gains of around 180,000 and the unemployment rate to stay steady at 3.9%. That would show a tempering of hiring and wage gains, which was the point of all these rate hikes after all. This is the last set of data around the labor market that the Fed will see before it meets on interest rates December 12th and 13th. The earnings calendar is winding down, but we'll get reports this week from widely held companies including Broadcom, Lululemon, GameStop, AutoZone, Dollar General, and Chewy, to name a few. And the corporate events calendar remains pretty busy, with Shopify, McDonald's, and Johnson & Johnson among those companies hosting investor or corporate events. Did you ever wish that you had that one special person in your life who was really good with money? They'd figured out how to make more, keep more, and find their way around the mysterious corners of our financial lives that a lot of us get trapped in? That special friend who could show you the way to actually take control of your money and make it work for you? She's out there. And if you haven't found Vivian too, aka Your Rich BFF yet on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or the podcast Net Worth and Chill, then you are probably not scrolling in the right places. If you care about money, that is. She's built an audience of millions, generated billions of streams, but most importantly, helped countless people get smarter about their money. We love friends like that at Investopedia, and we're happy to finally make friends with Viv2 right here on the Investopedia Express. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It is so good to be here. We've been following you for such a long time, and we love what you're doing out there. But tell us your origin story. You worked on Wall Street. You were on that path mm -hmm. right across the uh, the street here down on Wall Street. What made you jump off? You know, I was trading equities at J.P. Morgan. This was my dream job. I had gone to school, UChicago in particular, an economics-focused school, and I thought, you know, I made it. It was amazing. And it was. For the first year and a half until I realized Wall Street isn't what it used to be, one, in terms of pay. I was still working close to 16 
to 18-hour days. And it was about at the year and a half mark when I was taken away from my manager, who I loved, and pivoted over to a different manager that my experience just really started to change. Um, This new guy couldn't find a single thing that I was doing correctly. He didn't like that I was too girly, as he called it. He didn't like how my nails click-clacked on the keyboard. He didn't like how I dressed. And one day I came into work with a longer cardigan, and he touched his hands together and bowed at me and said, ooh, is that a kimono? And in that moment, I recognized that I was at a turning point in my career. This man was never going to be in the back room pounding the table demanding that his junior get paid so that he could keep the star talent. He wasn't going to advocate for me. So I thought, hey, I care about money. I care about getting paid. I have a lot of skills. We got to go somewhere else. And that is why I ended up leaving Wall Street for the greener pastures of tech and media, as many young people do, so I could wear ripped jeans and sweatpants to work and make even more money. But then I ended up at BuzzFeed in their digital media strategy sales department and ad sales. And I was really happy. I made a ton of money, made a lot of friends. And these friends would then ask me, hey, what can you teach me about money? Because you come from Wall Street. And I would help them rebalance their 401ks, pick the right health insurance. And I got the same question so many times, I started putting them on the internet. And the very first video, January 1st of 2021, went viral. And I became your rich BFF pretty much overnight. Yeah, we watched that video. And it's amazing <laughs> because it was seemed so authentic. And all your videos really seemed like you being you yeah. at that level. But there you were just, it seemed like you were fed up with it all and just wanted to explain to the world how this actually works. Yeah. And you actually had your own rich BFF, so to speak, your mentor, mm-hmm. who was there kind of all along in the early parts of your career. Tell us about Jean Ma. And what did she teach you that was so important? She was the blueprint. She was everything I wanted to be and everything that, unfortunately, like my parents never were. My parents are Chinese immigrants. They were very focused on frugality and saving. And maybe some people listening to this can relate, but like the cookie tin in our living room was actually just a sewing kit hidden. That's the type of people we were. And it didn't feel like being wealthy was something that was for me until I met Jean. And she looked like me. And I looked at her and I was like, you're a young Asian woman. You are killing it at your career. Everybody respects you. Anytime she yelled back at one of the other guys on the trading floor, they would sit down. They would stop talking. They'd be like, yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. And I wanted that. I wanted to be rich. I wanted to be powerful. I wanted to have the glitz and glamour of New York. Um, She would come into work every day with like a new designer bag and fling it on the the back of the counter where we could put our stuff. And I was like, wow, she like doesn't even take care of these bags. Like she just must have like an infinite number of them. And that's why I wanted to be like her at first. It was super shallow. I just wanted to have all of these nice things and live a nice life. And her apartment was fancy and it was the nicest place I'd ever seen. But over time, it became learning lessons that only someone like her could teach me. Her mom needed surgery. She paid for it because she had the means to do that. And suddenly being rich no longer meant having a new designer bag every day, but being able to take care of your family, take care of your loved ones, have that freedom to be able to do that and not worry about bills. So just, she was someone I always wanted to be like, and I was really lucky. She took me under her wing. 
explained all the personal finance stuff I didn't know. She also gave great advice, like, don't text that guy back at 2 a.m. Don't get Botox off of Groupon. And, you know, she, she was my mentor. And I felt very, very fortunate to have her in my life. New book coming out is called Rich AF, The Winning Money Mindset That Will Change Your Life. And I got to say, it's brilliant. It's simple in a lot of ways, but sometimes that's what we need, simple lessons that we don't get taught. So you write about the mindset change you learned on Wall Street, which was that rich people were less concerned with scrimping and saving yes. and more focused on investing and growing their wealth. That seems obvious, but that is not obvious to most people. What made that light bulb go out for you? Well, it was just us having that like... 90-minute period right after lunch. Anybody who has worked in markets knows that the busiest times are right at open, 9.30 and at 4. And it's busy throughout the day, but there's typically for some reason or other, probably because every single trader on the street is eating their sad salad at the desk, things do slow down a little bit. And during that time, people like to have conversations with each other. And they were just trading, you know, ideas of, you know, these are good investments. Like my cousin has like this startup idea. Does anybody want to, you know, join the friends and family round? What have you? And I'm like, why are all of you trying to give your money away? Give it to me, the charity of me. It's my first year in New York. I have two nickels to rub together. And it became abundantly clear that no one was stressing the $15 salad. Whereas I feel like in my home growing up, I watched my parents bring lunch to work every single day. They hardly ever went out for lunch. And I, I'm i grateful because some of those incredibly frugal decisions were why they were able to help me pay off my college tuition. I, I don't have student debt. I'm so grateful to say that. It's a privilege. But the people on Wall Street would hand me their credit card and say, hey, can you go run lunch and just grab it for the row? I'm like, you mean eight of us? That's right. We're talking about like 500 bucks and you're like, excuse me, one lunch. And every so often someone would just be in a good mood. They would get a promotion. They would get a raise, whatever. And they'd be like, oh, I'll buy lunch for the desk. I'm like, that's three people. And they would get like Bobby Vans burgers and fries. I'm like, each individual meal of this is $50. You just bought $50 lunches for 30 people. I'm doing the math in my head. And I'm like, I couldn't, you know, obviously come together with that, even that much money. And I was like, that's so incredible that they're doing that. And they wouldn't even sweat it. And I wanted to get to a point where I wouldn't have to sweat decisions like that. I could just be generous. I could give and also be able to spend in that way. And I think that was the first time I realized, like, no one was stressing the small purchases. They were always constantly thinking of, like, I have money either in a savings account or that's coming in soon or my bonus is coming. I need to figure out where I can put that money so it can start making me more money versus let me hoard this and not buy lunch for the desk. Let's get into some of the tactical things in the book, like side hustles. Yeah. You talk about them being making them low risk and they should actually make you money. Yes. A lot of people say they have a side hustle, mm-hmm. but it's neither of those things. Tell us about the importance of how to choose a side hustle. Yeah. First and foremost, low barrier to entry. You already have a car and you want to pick up a couple trips on Uber. Great. But imagine living in New York City. You don't have a car, you've hardly ever driven. And now you want to be an Uber driver? You're going to have to go to a company that's going to lease you a car. You know, that's why all the Ubers you see are black Toyota Camrys. It's from one company. You're going to probably have to get driving lessons so you know how to drive around the city. Make sure that whatever side hustle you pick is something that you are able to jump into relatively quickly because the whole point of a side hustle is to fulfill a short-term cash need. So I highly recommend people pick up side hustles 
when there's a short-term savings goal. So think weddings, things you want to buy, you want to buy a car, you want to put a down payment on a home, what have you. You can pick up a side hustle to supplement your income. But don't be spending more money than you're making because that doesn't make any sense. So I think when you are choosing a side hustle, make sure it's easy for you to do. It's easy for your lifestyle. The barriers to entry are low and you're actually making money. All right. Let's talk about the difference between being rich and being wealthy. There's a lot of how to get rich Mm -hmm. on Instagram, on all the social channels. There's not a lot of how to build wealth, which is actually the game. Yeah. Maybe a little less sexy, takes a lot longer. It's Mm -hmm. like a marathon. But let's hear your definition of the difference between being rich and being wealthy. So I'm actually trying to give rich a rebrand because I think the word has been, to your point, villainized for quite some time, right? When you think rich, you're thinking someone who is wearing a gaudy sweater with just monogram designer logos all over it. They drive the most ostentatious lime green convertible car. They try to show off. They're throwing cash out of the roof of whatever. And when you think wealthy, what I picture at least are old money families in Martha's Vineyard with their quadrillion thousand square foot summer homes walking on the beach with their matching navy blue t-shirts and white pants for their little family photo shoot. And they're not worried about working because they know they've got it and, you know, they've got it. They got money in the bank. They got investments in the bank. And that family is going to be taken care of. Yeah. Generational wealth. Generational wealth. I joke about this. I'm like, I'll know I'm really, really rich and in this case, wealthy when my kid can be whatever major they want. Because guess what? Not all majors were available to me as a first generation immigrant kid. My parents were like, you can be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And since you went to Chicago, maybe if a finance person, I was like, okay, sick. Like I've got four to choose from. What will I do? I want that freedom. And so I think I'm rebranding rich to mean the same thing as wealthy because rich shouldn't just be gratuitous displays of wealth. It should mean getting rich and staying rich. And I think there's power in taking that word back. Well, maybe you already answered this, but I was going to ask you, when was the first time you actually felt rich or wealthy in your Mm. life? I felt rich for the first time when I was able to pay for a vacation that didn't require connecting flights. (laughs) Flying direct. Flying direct. I'm just saying, okay, I have run through so many airports. I am the queen of the gate-to-gate marathon. I'm always the last person. For some reason or other, I'm always on a connecting flight that's a little late and the other one's a little early. And by the time I'm on the plane, I've sweat through my shirt. And that is such a horrible experience to start vacation off of because it's stressful. It causes undue stress. and. It's not the comfort of a direct flight or flying first class. It's not that. It's the reassurance that I'm going to get where I need to be and it's not going to freak me out. Because that's what real wealth is, is like being able to provide yourself with options, being able to provide yourself with the freedom to make decisions that work for you. Yeah. Owning your time is another way of putting it, right? exactly. Flying direct saying, I'm going to own my time and I can afford that extra couple hundred bucks to fly direct if I have to. I love that. All right. You say in the book also, and you're right about this, you can't save your way to being rich. You have to invest, which is near and dear to our hearts here. Tell folks what you really mean by that. Yeah. So back in the day, back in, I would say maybe like my grandparents' generation, 
you could have a single income family. They would be able to buy a standalone single family house, white picket fence, you know, two and a half kids, golden retriever, tire swing out front. That one income, if saved, would be able to help them go on vacation twice a year and eventually retire at 60 and they would have a pension from the job that they had. Things are a little different for my generation now. First and foremost, pensions are all but gone. The pension was replaced by the 401k, and they're similar, except the 401k is worse in literally every single way. Instead of your company setting money aside for you for retirement, now you have to do it. It's on you. It's on you. It's like, if you don't do it, too bad, so sad. So one, we need to be a little bit more selfish as modern day people in society because we have to protect ourselves. It can't be our company protecting us. And then two, because of the rise of the cost of living, the fact that education has 10x in price, housing, depending on where you live, has 10x in the past like 50 years, and wages have stagnated, you can no longer just save your way to that vacation two times a year and retirement at 60. The only way that you are going to make the math work and bridge what you have and what you need to get to is by investing. And I love saying this. Investing is the easiest way for you as one single human being individual to be a two-income household. Because I make money through labor, but I then take some of that labor money, I invest it, and my money then gets to work hard for me. And that's, the, that's how my book is set up. It's I work hard for the money and my money works hard for me. Because over time, what you want to happen is think about all of the money coming into you as a pie chart. It's just a big old circle. And for labor, it's red. And for money from investing, it's green. At the beginning of your career, this pie chart is almost all red. And you're starting investing. You've got a little sliver of green. But over time, the hope is that that green sliver gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that red piece gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So eventually, instead of using your body or your brain to make money, you're using your money to make money, and you get to kick your feet up, have a lemonade, and go swim in the pool. Yeah. Making your money work for you mm -hmm. and putting your money to work, that's the magic. But you mentioned the key word, which is time, yes. right? And that means compounding, the ninth yep. wonder of the world. Yep. You need all of those things, but they don't teach us that when we're young. Let's do a lightning round here. Some quick myth busting, if you don't mind. Tell me what you feel about this. Rich people are lazy, right or wrong? 100%. Rich people don't want to work. They want their money to work hard for them. They only like talking about working hard, but they want to kick back. Yeah. All debt is bad debt. True or false? Absolutely not. Debt is only bad when poor people take it on. When rich people take on debt, it's called leverage, and we put them on Time Magazine. I just think that the way we talk about debt should not be morally positive or negative. It should be neutral because it's just a tool. Yeah. I love the lesson you learned playing Monopoly with your friend out in the Hamptons <laughs> about debt because they actually knew how to yeah, lever up. I didn't know how to play Monopoly, And right. then take the entire table. All right. When it comes to paying down debt, are you a snowball person or an avalanche person or does it depend on the scenario? I'm an avalanche person because I'm an Aries and I'm incredibly impatient. So I'm trying to pay the least in interest and do it as fast as possible. Yeah, it's up to each individual, yeah. but you have to decide which one you're going to do if you do have that debt. All right, the importance of the FU number. So important. Everybody should have an FU number. And for anybody who doesn't know, this is how you calculate it. You close your eyes. Don't close your eyes if you're driving right now. But you envision your perfect year. How much money does it take to 
support your lifestyle for that year. Think about things like mortgage payments, the food you have to eat, any vacations you want to go on. Does Fido need heartworm medication? Do your kids need help paying for school? Whatever, everything. And add all that up. How much money do you need that year? Then divide that number by 0.04. The result is your FU number. That 0.04 essentially represents 4%, which is a very, very conservative return. There are high-yield savings accounts that are returning 5% right now. So 4% is essentially what you can count on getting with that money invested. And essentially, once you have your FU number invested, you can live every single year off of the interest you earn or the capital gains that you're getting and you never have to work again and you can still support that exact lifestyle you had envisioned in your head. Yeah, there it is, folks. A calculation that will give you your own FU number. So do you have an FU number, Vivian, too? I do. Uh, So my FU number is 25 million. It feels large, but there's the rationale behind this, okay? 25 million backs into a million dollars a year. This covers mortgage payments on two homes. It covers any sort of education costs that I'm going to have to be paying for kids. It's going to cover any sort of pet needs. It's going to cover any sort of transportation. It works in a huge budget for me to haha party. Uh, I'm going on vacation. You will catch me on the beaches. You will catch me at the lakes. You will catch me near water bodies only in warm weather. The temperature has to be somewhere between 64 and 78 degrees at all times, wherever I'm at. But a million dollars gives me the perfect life and I never have to work again. Yeah, you got to have that number. And that's what we always talk about here on this podcast and, and on Investopedia. What does it cost to be you? You figure that out, folks. Everybody should do that. So important. All right. Best book about money that you've read besides your own, which is coming out soon. I will say I do love the old classic, Richest Man in Babylon by uh, George Clayson. It's just so fun to hear him talk about assets and liabilities in the form of like buying donkeys at the bazaar. And listen, my content is a little bit more Coachella tickets than donkeys and fruits and vegetables, but it did make a lot of sense. It's also very short and thin and it's a very unintimidating read. And I just really enjoyed it. It was the first one that I ever bought and read. I just reread it and it is just full of common sense. And you can read a lot of that common sense rewritten over the generations, but that book, kind of the OG of how to think about money and how to think about debt, but also how to think about growing your wealth. We love that choice. All right. What's your favorite movie or TV show about money? So I like Billions, but earlier seasons, I thought it was a bit more rah-rah hedge fundy versus like, oh, this is so convoluted. Like, you know, people are getting divorced left and right. There's weird stuff happening. And then I would say in terms of movies, I have always just really loved The Big Short because they do those asides with like Selena Gomez at the craps table and Margot Robbie in the tub to explain some of those concepts. And I'm like, how cool is that? I've never seen something on the big screen take the time to actually explain a financial concept like they did. I love it. And they address camera. So yeah. it's not like it's part of the movie. They're like, time out. Yeah. Let's all make sure we're not getting confused here. Great choice there. Can't agree with you more. All right, let's go out on this. You know, Investopedia is a site founded on our financial terms and our dictionary. We got to know what is Vivian Tu's favorite financial term and why? Mm, I think I like Giffen Goods because the way it was explained to me, I couldn't even think of an example, but I learned about this in my 
economics class in college and they were like, oh, it's essentially something that like over time as people make more money, they buy fewer of. And I was like, wait, what do you buy fewer of when you make more money, when you just buy more of it? And the great example that my professor taught was economy seats on planes. And over time, as you make more money, you start to buy first class tickets or you fly private. So I just thought it's like a cool economic principle. Not sure if it's super relevant, but no, no, I like we, it. We love it. And you're the first person <laughs> in this podcast, in the history of this podcast, to come up with that term. And we were going to link to you on that term just because nice. you said it. <laughs> Vivian Tu, a.k.a. your rich BFF and the author of a new and terrific book, Rich AF, The Winning Money Mindset That Will Change Your Life. Thank you so much for joining The Express. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. If you guys want to buy the book, you can at richaf.me. And we will link to that as well in the show notes. Thank you. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term is another person, a very special person in the investing pantheon, Charlie Munger, one of our investing heroes. Munger passed away last week at the ripe young age of 99 years old. He would have turned 100 next month. The vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway was much more than Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He helped lead Berkshire to some of its best investments and new frontiers in his six decades together with Buffett. Everything from the purchase of Seas Candies, a floundering candy company for $25 million, to Berkshire's bets on electric vehicles in China and new technologies out of the Middle East. Born in Omaha, Nebraska, like Buffett, Munger went to the Army as a teenager and then talked his way into Harvard Law School, where he then graduated magna cum laude. He was a practicing attorney, a pretty savvy investor in his own right, the chairman of the Daily Journal, a publicly traded company that publishes legal magazines and websites, a philanthropist, a teacher, and always and forever the straight man to Buffett, the showman. A man of few but powerful words, Buffett would call Munger the abominable no-man because he constantly panned potential acquisitions for Berkshire unless they fit into Munger's model of buying splendid businesses at reasonable prices. I had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing Munger a few times in my career, and I'll never forget those conversations. The most important thing he ever said to me was not about investing or making money. It was about being an evolved human being. He said the most important lesson he ever learned in his life is that he only had room in his life for people who had the capacity to change and those who will make room for that to happen. I will never forget that. But Munger was hilarious, a man of few words, but always the right ones. Here's a gem or two from Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings with Buffett and Munger over the past years. For those of you who are about to enter business school or who are there, I recommend you learn to do it our way, but at least until you're out of school, you have to pretend to do it their way. <laughs> People don't seem to get that point. Do you have any idea why, Charlie? <laughs> Warren, if people weren't so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. No. <laughs> yeah, I think you would understand any presentation using the word EBITDA. If every time you saw that word, you just substituted the phrase bullshit earnings. <laughs> So, no, I'm, I'm optimistic about life. If I can be optimistic when I'm nearly dead, surely the rest of you can handle a little inflation. <laughs> Rest in peace, Charlie Munger. You made the investing world smarter and a lot funnier. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and special thanks to Vivian Tu for climbing aboard the Express. We've been fans for a long time, and it was great to spend a little time with our new rich BFF. 
follow her across her social media channels and check out her new book. We'll link to ways to buy it at your favorite bookseller in the show notes and make somebody in your life or yourself a little smarter this holiday season by getting a copy. And check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Investopedia for the full conversation in video between Vivian and me. We'll post that later this week, and you may end up seeing a lot more of our interviews in video in 2024. Why not? That video on the internet thing, that just might work out one day. Keep it on track this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.